All right, welcome. This is uh, How We Got Our Bible, week four. And uh, <laughs> I do. <laughs> yes, I do. I'll get that ruler, you know, so you should have a sheet that says uh, Roman numeral 14. This is one of the advantages of this class. You get to brush up on your Roman numerals in case you forgot them from years ago. We're looking at uh, continuing our study of how we got our Bible. Let's review for just a moment. We talked last week about the Septuagint or you can pronounce it Septuagint or various pronunciations. And remember, that's the Greek translation of the what? The 70. The Greek translation by the 70, the LXX. But it's the Greek translation of what book, what document? Old Testament. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Done around 250 B.C., so after the Old Testament is completed say by 400 B.C., 250 B.C., the, the Old Testament is translated into Greek because Greek is the universal sort of language of the ancient world. So the Jews translated the Old Testament into Greek, the Septuagint. So we said that Christians in the time of Jesus, the time of the Apostle Paul, they would have had a Greek Bible because the Old Testament was translated into Greek and these Christians who lived in Corinth, they didn't know Hebrew. They couldn't read a Hebrew Old Testament. They read their Old Testament in the Greek. They read the Septuagint. So their Bible would have been a Greek Old Testament and the Greek New Testament. Of course, we said the New Testament was written in Greek, right? We talked about manuscripts of the New Testament. We said there's about 5,838 manuscripts. Most of these are fragmentary, not whole copies. And they're classified according to the kind of writing material and the material they're written on. There's papyrus, and uh, there are things called uncials. There's minuscules, there's lectionaries. There's various classifications we talked about last time. So there's a great number of these, and we said that <coughs> makes for a very reliable New Testament. Compared to the number of manuscripts of things like Plato, you've heard of Plato, and people discuss Plato and read Plato, and uh, Herodotus' history of the ancient world, there's very few copies of many of these ancient documents that are taken for granted as being true and genuine and so forth. So the New Testament is, has many more copies, much more accurate as far as its transmission is concerned. And we talked about the Vulgate. Remember the Vulgate? That's a translation in what language? Latin, of the whole Bible. So we said that the language of the New Testament was really Greek, the language that was spoken throughout the world in the first century and in the second century. But in the second century, that began to change. By the time you get to the year 300, 400, Latin begins to dominate in the Western, Western Europe. And that's what we're concerned. We're concerned about Western Europe because our Bible, our English Bibles, come out of Western Europe. The tradition is out of Western Europe. And so North Africa, Western Europe, 
by the year 400, by the year 300, it was just Latin. And that makes sense. Latin was the language of the Roman Empire. And so the Bible was translated into Latin. And around 405, we have Jerome, the famous biblical scholar, creating a, a translation to Latin called the Vulgate. And that became the Bible of the church for the next thousand years plus. So here's the Vulgate translated by Jerome from the original languages into Latin. And this becomes the Bible right up to 1500, 1600. I mean, people are still using the Vulgate. In fact, the Vulgate, an edition of the Vulgate, is still the official translation of the Roman Catholic Church, actually. We talked about the transmission of the New Testament some last time, and we talked about this early period before AD 325 when uh, Christianity was being persecuted, then from 325 to 1516 when Christianity was a legal religion, and then 1516 to 1633 is the period we're looking at right now, how the New Testament is translated during this period. And this is the period of what we call the establishment of the Textus Receptus. In Latin, that's actually Textus Receptus. In classical Latin, that C would be pronounced like a K, so Textus Receptus. But we, it's usually anglicized to say Textus Receptus. So you hear people talk about the Textus Receptus or the TR, the abbreviation TR or Textus Receptus. So we're talking about the establishment. How did the Textus Receptus become established. This is the printed Greek text of the New Testament that dominated for so many years. Uh, well, we talked about uh, the invention of printing uh, uh, last time in the 15th century, around 1450, Gutenberg's printing press. And the first thing that comes off that printing press is the Latin Vulgate, the Bible, the Latin Bible. But then we talked about the first printed Greek New Testament. And we distinguish here, you notice on your notes, between printed and published because printed means actually printed and published means out, out for sale. So in Spain, a Bible called the Complutensian Polyglot, Complutensian, remember, is the Latin name for the place near Madrid where this was produced. Polyglot means many languages. So a Spanish cardinal produced a Bible. Now, it was in three languages in the Old Testament. There was Hebrew in the Old Testament. There was Latin. And there was the Greek Septuagint over here. So three languages. In the New Testament, only two, Latin and Greek. So this was the first printed Greek New Testament right here, printed in 1514. But he couldn't get approval to distribute until 1520, so it wasn't actually distributed. Uh, the first published and actually distributed was by Erasmus. He produced a much uh, uh, smaller edition, a much less expensive edition. It also was a Latin Greek New Testament. Uh, it's Latin Greek. This is the first edition in 1516. So here's the first readily available edition of the Greek New Testament. So even though the New Testament was written in Greek, and so when people go to seminary, people go to seminary like our pastor to study, they study the original languages. They study Aramaic, they study Hebrew, and they study the Greek language because they want to study the original languages and so forth. But before this time, no one in the West knew any Greek. 
No one in the West knew any Hebrew. I mean, anybody in the church. The Jews, they kept the Old Testament alive. They passed their Old Testament down in Hebrew. But nobody in the West knew anything about Hebrew because they didn't associate with Jewish people. They were, they were, they were heretics. Uh, they had crucified Jesus. And so Jews were hated and despised. Tremendous anti-Semitism in the Western in Western Europe during this time. And so uh, Christians, any kind of Christian, they didn't know any Hebrew and they didn't know any Greek because especially in the latter part of from 1,000 on, there was just nobody who knew any Greek. It was all Latin dominated. And so the, the, the Bible was the Vulgate. But then there was a revival in learning, the Renaissance and so forth, and a revival in learning in Europe, and people wanted to get back and study the original languages. So the, the interest in Greek started coming along here in the 16th century, and Erasmus produced his Latin Greek New Testament here in 1516. Here it is, Latin Greek side by side. His Latin was really what most people were interested in. He produced the Latin Greek New Testament, but he didn't produce it because there were a lot of people who knew Greek out there. They didn't know Greek. Erasmus himself had to learn Greek. He didn't know Greek. He was a Roman Catholic priest, grew up, studied for the priesthood, became a monk, and so forth. He didn't know anything about Greek until he had to study it. Uh, what he was doing here was producing a revision of the Vulgate, a kind of a new international version of the Vulgate here he was producing. <laughs> so that people could understand the Vulgate. The Vulgate had been produced in 400. That's a long time ago. This is 1,100 years later. Latin has changed over time, and so uh, in order to bring the Latin up to date, he was interested in producing a Latin edition, and that's what he did here. And uh, that's what most people who bought this could read. Now, the Greek was there to show, okay, I didn't just pull this out of my, suck this out of my thumb. Uh, I, this, there is actually a basis for this Latin translation here. It's this, it's this Greek here, if you can read it. But people who wanted to know Greek, this was a way they could get a Greek New Testament, try to learn Greek, and so forth. So this was uh, Erasmus's Greek New Testament. Uh, Erasmus only had seven New Testament manuscripts. So Erasmus's Greek New Testament is not quite as accurate as the New Testaments we have today. Uh, it's not that it's a different New Testament, it's a different Bible, but we're talking about minor points here, small points. And small points, Erasmus's Greek New Testament is not as accurate as a Greek New Testament today that's based on all of the manuscripts we have, all these thousands of manuscripts. It can be, tend to be more accurate. We noticed last time that Erasmus only had one copy of Revelation. That's not many. You know, if there's, if there's an error in that copy, then it's in Erasmus's edition, as we talked about last time. Um, there's this third edition. Erasmus had five editions. This is the one that became the most popular and a lot of people used in translating. We'll see William Tyndall in a moment. He used this 1522 edition of Erasmus to translate. Most the early translations of the English Bible tended to use this or a copy by Beza. So this was the most popular one. So after Erasmus... Uh, other people came along and reprinted what he was done. There were no copyright laws in those days. So, you know, you could take somebody else's work and just reprint it and distribute it. There was no fines or penalties or anything. And so people came along and took Erasmus's work and reprinted it. They made corrections. Because Erasmus, Erasmus's work was done so quickly that it had a lot of printing errors in it. At one point he said, 
this edition was thrown together rather than edited. It was just done so quickly and hurriedly. So people came along and they made corrections where there were obvious errors, printing errors and things like that. And you have a series of people. The first one of these is Robert Estian. Robert Estian is French, and most people in those days had both an ethnic name and a Latin name because all these scholars spoke Latin, they spoke Latin, and they wrote in Latin. Erasmus himself was a Dutch. He was Dutch. He went to study in Paris to learn Greek. He could, he could, he could walk through Paris. He could go to the University of Paris. He didn't have any trouble because everybody spoke Latin and all the classes were in Latin. He went to Italy. They spoke Latin. He went to England. He went to England. He stayed with Sir Thomas More and he spoke to Sir Thomas More in his Latin. His, uh, Sir Thomas's More wife was always mad when Erasmus came because he couldn't understand what they were saying. She didn't know Latin. But they would talk in Latin. So here is Robert Estian. He comes along after Erasmus. He reprints uh, uh, Erasmus's work and produces his own editions. He produces four editions of the Greek New Testament. Erasmus produced five, just corrections, improvements. Estian produces uh, four editions. Here's his 1550 edition. Um, and this is his 1551 edition. Now, his 1551 is his last one, and it's noteworthy because it's the first edition of the New Testament to have verse divisions, uh, verse numbers. So remember in our Bibles, our chapter numbers come from the 13th century. They come from the 1200s. Uh, from the Archbishop of Canterbury, Stephen Langdon, put chapter divisions in the Latin Vulgate. Remember, the Latin Vulgate was the Bible in 1300. So our chapter divisions come from the Latin Vulgate, but then in 1551, Robert S.D.M. puts in these verse divisions, and eventually they get into an English Bible in 1560 called the Geneva Bible. But we'll see the early English Bibles we look at, they don't have any verse divisions. They have chapter divisions, but no verse divisions. So, Estian. Then after him, a man by the name of Theodore Beza. He's very famous because he took over for John Calvin in Geneva. He was Calvin's right-hand man. When Calvin died, he took over. He produced nine editions of the Greek New Testament. One of his editions is 1598. And these are all similar to Erasmus, slight variations, corrections, improvements. His 1598 edition is the edition the King James translators used. When they translated in the early 1600s, they used Beza's 1598 edition of the Greek New Testament. Here's his 1588 edition. Then there is the Elzevers, uh, Bonaventure and Abraham Elzevers. The Elzevers uh, was a famous printing house in Europe. They printed all kinds of stuff. Now, we're just in the early days of printing. This is in the, uh, the 1600s and so forth. But they produced seven editions of the uh, Greek New Testament from 1624 to 1678. And it's from one of their editions that we get the name Textus Receptus or Textus Receptus. So we've been talking about Erasmus and his TR, but he didn't call it the Textus Receptus. It comes from an advertising blurb. They had an advertising blurb naturally in Latin, because all educated people read Latin, that said textum ergo habes nuc am omnibus receptum. So you see this textum receptum, which means the text received. 
the, and that's an accusative case. In the nominative case, it's textus receptus. So, so from this statement, they say, therefore you, dear reader, have the text now received by all which we have given nothing changed or corrupted. It's, it's kind of a thing saying, hey, this is it, friends. This is the final text. It's perfect. It's good. It's great. You know, buy this. And pay, your, pay your money and buy this text. And so from that phrase, textum receptum or textus receptus, we get the term TR. And we apply it going back to Erasmus. We talk about Erasmus and the TR. Now, Erasmus didn't call it the textus receptus, but this is really just a revision. All these editions are just revisions of Erasmus's work. Erasmus is the fountainhead behind this. So this is the second edition in 1633. So the name TR was not around until 1633, but we apply it to all editions going back to Erasmus. <clears throat> so we have all these manuscripts in the New Testament today. They didn't have them back in Erasmus's day. The TR is based on a very small number of manuscripts, and the King James, of course, is based on the TR because in the day of the King James, they didn't know about these 5,000-plus manuscripts. There were just a few manuscripts around in the early days. These things have been discovered mostly in the 1800s and the 1900s, all these manuscripts have been discovered. <clears throat> so we're looking at 1633 to 1831. As I say here, during this time, a few manuscripts came into being, but the TR was still the translation that was with the Greek text that was being used for any translation work. Now, by 1633, of course, the King James had already been translated, but right up until 1831. In 1831, about 1881, scholars began to uh, produce Greek New Testaments, new Greek New Testament, different from the Texas Receptus. The two men most famous are Westcott and Hort. You may have heard of their, their names in 1881. Let's talk about English translations of the Bible. We'll come back to this text thing a little later on. But let's jump now and talk to about English translation. So we've talked about the original Greek and Aramaic. We've talked about the original Greek. And now we want to see how that got translated into English. Now there was a time when there was no English language. English evolved from other languages. It hasn't always been around. So you can see there the old English or Anglo-Saxon period I've got on your... So English is thought to originate, say, around 450. 450 is sort of the beginning of the English language as we think of an English language. That's the Old English or Anglo-Saxon period, 450 to 1150. And uh, as I say there, there was no English translation of, of the entire Bible during this period because uh, few people could really read anyway. Um, so there wasn't any great demand. Very few people could read English. You know, they spoke English during this time. Old English or Anglo-Saxon was spoken. But very few people could read English, and people who could read, read Latin. It's hard, it's hard to know about the literacy rates of people. There have been a lot of studies on that. Here's one of the latest studies that's been done on literacy. And this takes us back to, say, about 1475. And I've got Great Britain. Great Britain is the green line here. And so in 1475, this study estimated that maybe 5% were literate. Probably before 1475, it was lower than that. But by 1475, you've got the printing press, 
you've got uh, the revival of learning, interest in learning. People are interested in learning. You're moving out of the, the dark ages and so forth. So they, this study says around 1550, you've got 16%, 1635, 1650, 53, although that stayed about 53 until about 1820, uh, 1820 or so or something. So my point in saying all this is that very few people could read. They spoke their language, but they, they couldn't really read English. So there wasn't any great move to translate the Bible into English. The Bible that was used was the Latin Vulgate. Uh, that was the Bible of scholarship, of people who were educated, of the church, and so forth. So uh, uh, all translation work, as I said here, was done from the Latin Vulgate. Because remember, as I said before, in the West, the knowledge of Greek had been lost. There wasn't uh, any Greek speakers, particularly in the Western Europe. The knowledge of Hebrew was just among the, the Jews, and Christians didn't associate with Jews. So the Bible that, that anyone used, anybody, was the Latin Vulgate. That was the Bible that anyone, if anybody had a Bible, they had a Latin Vulgate. Uh, here's the first, uh, as I mentioned here, uh, the first known work from this period is that we know about was by a herdsman named Cademan, who rendered various portions of the Old Testament into English poetry. Now, what he did this was this was uh, this was done um, around uh, uh, six seventy. Uh, this is a manuscript from eighty one thousand, but apparently he did his work around six seventy in the seventh century. But uh, what he did was he rendered various portions of Genesis, Exodus, Daniel into kind of a poetic story. So he it was he he just made stories out of the narratives in Genesis and Daniel, the Daniel lines then, so he could teach people about the Bible and they could memorize it. So uh, he put this in sort of an old English poetry, and you could memorize this, and you would know the Bible, know a little bit about the Bible. That's the first known work. Um, other translators include, uh, I mentioned Elmhelm, Bishop of Sherborne, uh, translated the Psalms around 700. Egbert, Bishop of York, Matthew, Mark, and Luke around 705. Here's the Venerable Bede. He's a well-known man in English history because he did a lot of writing, wrote a history of England, the British Empire, and so forth. He's always kind of given that title, Venerable but uh, he was the greatest scholar in the 8th century and he may have translated the gospel of John uh, so we know a little bit about him uh, then there's King Alfred the Great uh, King Alfred, he promoted culture and literacy, translated Exodus 21 through 23, why would he want that? because that's the commandment, Ten Commandments and so you're trying, you're trying to translate that so people know what the Ten Commandments are and so forth uh, Elfric, abbot of Incham, uh, translated portions of the first seven books. So there's very little translation. Very few people could read English. Here's what John 3.16 looks like in Old English in 995. Doesn't look like any English that we exactly know, do we? But this is Anglo-Saxon or Old English 995. What was the Gaelic language that was a part of that? Like if you go to Wales, they speak 
Oh. No, it's different. It's different. Can you pronounce that? Can you no, I can't. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm going to say we, have, we, should have, we should have Sheila's son in there. He's an English major, and he can, you know. Uh, it's hard to know exactly how they pronounce this. But we can see some words there. And, you know, if you know German a little bit, you can see some German influence there a little bit. But it's pretty tough to make out Old English at all. So when you, if you, I don't know if you've, when I was in college, we had, we had took British literature. We started off with literature from the Old English period. And Beowulf, read that, Beowulf, remember? But you didn't read it in Old English because you couldn't make any sense out of Old English. This is like this. We just couldn't make it. When you get to Middle English, when we get there and get uh, Chaucer, then they make us read it in Middle. Remember that? And that's tough, but you can kind of make out Middle English. But this Old English, you can't make heads or tails out of it. Let's talk about the Middle English period. This is uh, 1150 to 1475. 1150 to North 1475. Now, things changed in England with the conquest of England by a man, William the Conqueror, William the First of England, a Frenchman, William of Normandy, conquered England in 1066. And so the Anglo-Saxon language was changed greatly. Because here we have a Frenchman who's come in who speaks French. The government now operates in French. The nobles he brings in are Frenchmen and so forth. And so you have this tremendous French influence, which we have in our language. We have English as, as a lot of French influence. And that influence comes because uh, William the Conqueror, William, William, William of Normandy, comes in and... And, and conquers. So there's little in interest in the English language per se. Uh, there's not a lot of interest in that because these rulers spoke French. Uh, portions of the Bible were translated during this period, but no complete uh, a portion of the Bible was translated until the very end of this period. This period, we're saying, goes up to 1475 because the English was changing so much. It was just tremendous changes in the English language. Uh, but as in this earlier period, everything was done from the Latin Vulgate. So in the Middle English period, 1150 to 1475, any translation work was done from the Latin Vulgate. We come to John Wycliffe then, the first man to translate the Bible, as far as we know, complete Bible into English, Wycliffe and his assistants, 1330 to 84. Wycliffe, as I say here, was a chaplain of the king. Remember, Rome is a uh, England is a Roman Catholic country. He's a chaplain of the king, but he has these sort of Reformation ideas. He's living 150 years before Martin Luther, but he has the same kind of ideas. He sees the corruption of the Roman Catholic Church. He doesn't believe in the supremacy of the Pope. He opposes that. He doesn't believe in transubstantiation. We had communion this morning, but the Roman Catholics believe. You remember that the. The actual elements are transformed into the actual body, the actual body and blood, the actual blood of Jesus Christ. They're not symbolic at all. So he opposed this transubstantiation and the communion. He opposed the papacy. He believed in Scripture and the supremacy of Scripture and so forth. So uh, he, along with a disciple by the name of Nicholas of Hereford, Produced, as far as we know, the first complete English Bible in 1380. 1380. Now, it was based on the Latin Vulgate. Now, by this time, remember we talked about the Apocrypha, those 
extra biblical books. The Vulgate had come to include all these apocryphal books, and so this, his Bible contained the apocrypha because uh, they include the they include the apocrypha. Um, if you can make out of that the book of the generation you see any of that the son of this what looks like kind of like an F is an S here at the beginning of words son of David son of Abraham can you see can you can make that out so it looks this middle English is starting to look more like what we think of as you know modern English the church opposed Wycliffe's translation they opposed this. They didn't want the, the Bible translated into English. And as I mentioned here, although he died in 1384, he was considered such a heretic by the church that they exhumed his body and burned his bones in 1428. He was, he was declared a heretic by the church as communicated and so forth. And I mentioned here this 1408 synod at Oxford. There was a 1408 gathering of church leaders at Oxford, and they uh, condemned the teachings of Wycliffe. And they put a ban on all Bible translation in 1408. Now, this hurt England, because other European countries got the Bible into their languages long before uh, England did. Because of this ban, because of Wycliffe, they considered a heretic. They produced what they call the Constitutions of Oxford. And these Constitutions of Oxford said it's you cannot translate the Bible into, into, into English. You can't read the Bible in English. So you can't read it in English or any other common tongue. England, you can't read the Bible in German or French or English. Other only you can only read it in Latin. So this put uh, and this ban lasted till 1537, till Henry VIII finally removed that. Well, then there was John Purvey. He was an assistant, and Purvey produced a revision of Wycliffe's Bible. Um, 1388, he had a more complete, uh, kind of a more idiomatic translation. Wycliffe's translation was very literal of the Latin, so it was very hard to understand because he had kind of like Latin word order. And about 200 editions of, of uh, as I mentioned, Wycliffe's Bible are known, and most of them are this Purvey edition. I don't know if you can read uh, any of that. Will be done in earth, is in heaven, and so forth. Give us this day our bread. So we can we can read Middle English a little bit. It's it's not impossible like the old English is. Here's John three sixteen in middle in the Middle English. Check. <laughs> yeah, my computer doesn't like this because it wants to correct it. You know. Well, let's talk about the modern English period. We can divide the modern English period into two areas: the early period, early modern period, 1475 to 1780, and we're in the later modern period now, after 1780. But the early modern period, 1475 to 780. And let's just mention a few introductory matters here. 
Um, remember in this period, uh, Latin is the dominant language. Um, uh, Greek is spoken in the East, but by this time, the church has split apart. In 1054, there was this great schism, the great split between the church in the West, the Roman Catholic Church, and the Orthodox Church in the East. So in the East, they speak Greek, and they read their Bible in Greek, but in the West, they don't have anything to do with people in the East, because they're heretics. There's only heretics, and that Greek Bible is a heretical Bible. The Latin Bible is the inspired and errant infallible Bible, not the Greek Bible. So uh, things began to change here with uh, the fall of Constantinople in 1453. can't see that's a terrible slide there. But uh, what I was trying to show here was the rise of the Ottoman Empire. You remember that Islam arises, what, around the 7th century and so forth, and then we have the Crusades and so on. And then uh, uh, Islam gains control of the whole Middle East, and eventually some people call the Turks, the Ottoman Turks, they gain control of the entire Middle East, including Turkey, and they actually go right up into Europe. They almost they almost take over Europe. They go right to the gates of Vienna and so forth right there, and they're defeated. But the Ottoman Turks, this Ottoman Empire, you know, this Ottoman Empire from, say, 1351, this lasts until World War I. Until World War I. The, the Ottomans are controlling Israel until World War I. So this is an empire, it's really a long-lasting empire. 600 years of empire, 500 years. And what happened, as I was trying to show here, is these Ottomans, uh, eventually, they're, they're back here in Turkey, they take over Constantinople. This was the headquarters of the Eastern Church. And so what happens is a lot of people, a lot of Greek-speaking Christians flee and come to Italy um, in uh, 1453. This uh, this takes place in 1453 when they take Constantinople here. And many Christians flee. They come to Italy in 1453, and they bring with them Greek manuscripts, and they bring the knowledge of Greek. Erasmus went to Italy to study Greek. Before he ever translated, put his, before he ever produced his Greek New Testament, he he came to Italy because that's where the knowledge of Greek first came into Europe, and then it spread up through Europe into Paris. Eventually, it went to England. So, uh, with the fall of Constantinople, these Greek manuscripts came into Europe. The knowledge of Greek came in. He had the invention of printing. Remember, fourteen fifty. This made circulation of the Bible possible. You could print Greek Bibles, you know, as we know with Erasmus, as we talked about. There was a revival, because of the Renaissance, there was a revival in learning, trying to get back to the original languages. Uh, practically all the Bibles printed in this time still contain the Apocrypha, as we'll see, and I'll kind of explain that as we go along. One of the last uh, countries to have a Bible was, of course, England, because of that ban, 1408 ban, on printing Bibles or reading Bibles in English. <clears throat> so here's William Tyndall. And I say here, he's the first person to translate from the original Greek and Hebrew, I should say into English. I don't mean, obviously, people have translated, but into English we're talking about. He's the first person to translate from the original Greek and Hebrew. But Tyndall was, uh, was a brilliant man and a tremendous linguist. He used to do German and French and Hebrew and Greek. He was just a tremendously brilliant man. And he studied at Oxford 
1512, probably studied at Cambridge. Erasmus, we talked about Erasmus, how Erasmus uh, uh, said that went to Paris and studied Greek, and then he went to Italy and studied Greek. He got so good at Greek, he was eventually invited to come to England and teach Greek at Cambridge. Uh, he did this before he produced his Greek New Testament, 1516. So, uh, 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 William Tyndall studied at Cambridge. We don't know if he studied under Erasmus or not, probably not, but he had taught there. And Erasmus was calling for Bibles in the common language. Erasmus, Erasmus was saying we should have Bibles in the common language of the people, not just in the Latin Vulgate. And people like William Tyndall picked up on that. And he hoped that this would, because he saw as he read the Bible, there was a lot of superstition in the Roman Catholic Church. There was a lot of false doctrine. There were a lot of things that weren't exactly right. Uh, transubstantiation, the supremacy of the Pope, that's not in the New Testament. He saw a lot of things like that. He saw salvation by grace rather than he saw all those works and penance and all that, and he questioned all those kinds of things. And so uh, he, uh, he, he, was, uh, he, he picked up on that need for Bibles in the common language. Uh, as I say here, Tyndall discovered that the clergy knew little about the Bible. So here we have people, priests in the Roman Catholic Church, they really don't know anything about the Bible at all. They don't know the Bible. They just, they're just carrying out their ceremonies. He had a famous debate with a Roman Catholic priest. You, you, you'll read this line about Tyndall, if you look at anything about Tyndall, where this Roman Catholic priest is saying, you don't need the Bible. All you need is to do what the Pope tells you. Just, just listen to what the Pope says. Don't worry about the Bible. And he made this famous statement, If God spare my life ere many years, I will cause a boy that driveth the plow shall know more of the Scripture than thou doest. So he's saying, I think the common man will know more Scripture than you do because I'm going to try to get the Bible translated into English where people can read that. So I mentioned here in number four, he was not allowed to do his translation work in England because that 1408 ban... So he went to Germany, and uh, he produced uh, the first printed English New Testament in 1526. 1526. Um, he used Erasmus' third edition. Remember that uh, third edition of Erasmus we talked about? Uh, 1522. Um, he looked at the Latin to see what the Latin said and so forth. He used Luther's New Testament. Luther had already translated the New Testament in 1522. And he knew German, so he looked at Luther to see how he did it and so forth. Um, there were about 3,000 copies printed of this uh, 1526 edition. As far as I know, only two are known to exist today. 1994, the British Library purchased one for a million pounds. Uh, that would be, what, two and a half million dollars or something like that, maybe. So, uh, there is his John 1. Remember, this is an S. This is a S here. Same was in the beginning with God. So it's very similar, isn't it, to the King James Version very similar. As I mentioned here, his New Testament was smuggled into England 
where authorities tried to burn it. Uh, Sir Thomas More, who was Henry VIII's chancellor. At this time, Henry VIII was a solid Roman Catholic. Now, as we'll see, Henry VIII breaks away from the Roman Catholic Church, but at this time, he's the Pope's right-hand man. He's been given the Defender of the Faith Award by the Pope. And uh, his chancellor, Sir Thomas More, attacked Tyndall because he failed to use the proper ecclesiastical terms. For instance, Tyndall, when he translated the Bible into English... The word church, we usually use the word church. Ecclesia, you know that Greek word ecclesia. But it just means assembly or congregation, doesn't it? It just means congregation or assembly. And so, uh, you know, our pastor is all, he doesn't want us to call this place the church, right? I have a hard time, you know, so he gets on me. This is the ministry center, right? Because we're the church. We're the people. No matter where we meet, we're the church, right? We're the assembly. So, in, in Tyndall's New Testament, he translated ecclesia as congregation. The church authorities were upset about that because that seems to move away from an ecclesiastical structure, a kind of a, a hierarchy with the magisterium and all that. So, they didn't like the fact that he used that. And the term elder had been translated often as priest, which it doesn't mean priest at all. So, he, he didn't use some of the common terms, and that upset uh, people in the church quite a bit. Uh, as I say here, Tyndall also translated portions of the Old Testament. Um, well, here's uh, you can see a little bit better of the Epistle of the Apostle. Notice they don't they don't waste any space. Do they? <laughs> the L E is down there at the end. <laughs> you know, there's no. It's not like you know we would never do that today. But but Paul, the servant of Jesus Christ, called him an apostle, but apart to preach the gospel of God, which very similar, isn't it, to what we have? Here is uh, Tyndall in the uh, compared to the King James. It's often said that the King James is mostly Tyndall. After Tyndall, we have other Bibles that we'll see. We have uh, Coverdale's Bible, Matthew's Bible, uh, the Great Bible, uh, the Bishop's Bible, the Geneva Bible. The King James Version, as we'll see. Yes? Um, I noticed in the, the piece you had from the book of John uh-huh. that he referred to God as it, but in his other writings here he refers to him as he. So was there some kind of transition he made? Right here? No. Before, it was before that. Oh, here? Was that before? Yes. Without it was... Was nothing there. It was me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he's just being. That's a that's a that's a good point. But he's just being very literal there. The Greek is actually uses a neuter term to refer to a masculine person. He doesn't mean anything by that. Oh, so it's it's just part of the. It's the, just part of the language. Of the language. Character of the language. Oh, it's just well, a neuter. Yeah. Uh, so here it is. It's very similar. And people will say 85% of our King James is really Tyndall. So people just copy Tyndall from now on. Just like they copied Erasmus, Greek New Testament, they just copy Tyndall. Tyndall was a brilliant linguist. He did a tremendous job. So the language of the King James is really the language of Tyndall. Here's his Pentateuch. So he started on the Old Testament. He did the Pentateuch. He did Jonah. He did Joshua through Chronicles. 
But before he can complete it, he was convicted as a heretic. And uh, he was arrested. He had, remember, he was in Europe. He was arrested in Antwerp by the authorities. And he was burned at the stake because of his translation of the Bible into English. Let me just close with this. This is a letter that has come to light, uh, you know, about, about 50 years ago. It's a letter that Tyndall wrote to a person in authority, the Marquis de Burge. And this person he's writing to, the Marquis, is, is kind of responsible for his imprisonment. He's in imprisonment. Now, he's going to be executed. He's going to be burned as a heretic. But he writes this letter. Here's, here's, uh, here's uh, Tyndall. He says, I believe, right worshipful, right worshipful, that you are not unaware of what may have been determined concerning me. Wherefore, I beg your lordship, and that by the Lord Jesus, that if I am to remain here through the winter, you will request the commissary to have the kindness to send me from the goods of mine, which he has, a warmer cap. For I suffer greatly from cold in the head, and am afflicted by perpetual catarrh, which is much increased in this cell. A warmer coat also, for this which I have is very thin. A piece of cloth, too, to patch my leggings. My overcoat is worn out. My shirts are also worn out. He has a woolen shirt, if he will be good enough to send it. I have also with him leggings of thicker cloth to put on above. He also has warmer nightcaps, and I ask to be allowed to have a lamp in the evening. It is indeed wearisome, sitting here in the dark. But most of all, I beg and beseech your clemency to be urgent with the commissary that he will kindly permit me to have the Hebrew Bible, Hebrew grammar, and Hebrew dictionary, that I may pass the time in that study. In return, may you obtain what you desire, provided that it be consistent with the salvation of your soul. But if any other decision has been taken concerning me to be carried out before winter, I will be patient, abiding the will of God, to the glory of the grace of my Lord Jesus Christ, whose spirit, I pray, may ever direct your heart. Amen. Signed, William Tyndall. Amazing. All right, let's stop here for today. Gone over a time. We'll pick it up right here, all right?